Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Hollywood moguls, actors, producers, politicians, top news editors, talking heads, it has been relentless. This autumn will go down as the season of speaking up for victims of sexual harassment and aggression. Today, I talk to a 40-plus year veteran of the ad industry, one of its most decorated female execs. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, Virginia's hands-down best market. Mm, 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 those breakfast biscuits, that juice bar, Malabar Indian Wednesdays. You can catch them at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets and at elwoodthompsons.com. I love that joint at the top of Carytown. Joining me in studio is Helene Spivak, Executive Director of VCU's Brand Center. She is a storied, well-traveled veteran ad exec. You started, what, in 1973? You've been at Young and Rubicam, Saatchi and Saatchi, J. Walter Thompson, and here you are slumming it on my podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, you could, you could have been a contender. You could have done better. <laughs> I don't think I could do any better than you, Robin. How are you? Uh, well, let me start out by saying, me too. Unpack that for me. Uh, Me Too is what every woman who has ever been um, harassed, whether uh, whether by word or uh, deed, uh, and it was what uh, it was was started by uh, an actress who posted and said, "Anyone who has gone through this, hashtag Me Too," and it went um, it went worldwide, and I was one of the Me Too's. It's interesting that you're looking at it as a viral marketing phenomenon, even though it's not craven to say it's. It's marketing, but it's certainly viral, but it's also informed by your own journey and your own travel. Take us back to how you got in the ad industry. Take us back to what the world was like in the early 70s. We certainly know about Mad Men. What the world was like was a lot like Mad Men. As a matter of fact, I had the opportunity sitting and waiting somewhere. They had Mad Men running, and it was a scene when um, the future award-winning copywriter was a secretary and it had her looking up while all of these men she was the new girl in town were assessing her as they walked by and it was a lot what it was like you were you were a lone woman uh, for the most part if you got past the secretarial ranks uh, you were probably the only female in the room and while I never felt it was a predatory uh, environment for myself uh, looking back, I realized it, a lot of it was just we ex- what we accepted back then. What What was that world like? I mean, early 70s, Manhattan, I'm thinking? You are in Manhattan? Manhattan. Uh, I was in my early 20s. How did you get that job? I mean, were you expected to clerk, pour coffee? I know what it's like from the news industry perspective and editorial assistance. How does it work in the old ad paradigm? You start out as a secretary. And uh, if you do a, a good enough job and you're persistent enough, you can get promoted. Uh, back then, women had either jobs or careers. Uh, a job was what you had until you got married. A career is what you had if you didn't get married. And uh, I ended up in a career, and a, a very nice one. But it was it was still very much a woman was supposed to be at home. She was supposed to have children, and to be a career woman was fairly unusual. Uh, I was on my own. I, I moved out of my house at um, 18. Uh, I finished off school, and then I went right into the workforce. And I started out the way all women did, which is behind a typewriter. Were you called a co-ed back then? I mean, isn't that a pejorative term right now? No, I wasn't called a co-ed back then. I was called a secretary. I was called a receptionist. Did you finish up college or an associate's degree or something? Uh, I went to Parsons School of Design. Uh Uh, I did the two years. uh, It was a three-year program. 
two years you could design children's wear because I was going for fashion design and three years was couture. So I left after two, got a job on 7th Avenue as a designer's assistant and realized that was not the life for me. And if you want uh, an atmosphere of harassment, you work with a bunch of fabric salesmen when you're 18 years old. Was that called Shimata Row? I mean, the yes, garment it was. district? It was definitely the Shimata trade. Okay. And so you're thinking to go up market. It was actually Madison Avenue back then and was known as the ad industry corridor. What's entailed? Do you draft? Did you have a resume back uh, then? Do, I, you, do you have I, to know someone? Do you just show up? Do you I put had, in a call or a reference letter? The one thing I did, which was better than any of my college education or any of my reading, was I went to Betty Owens and learned how to type. And that gave me entree to be the um, secretary for the creative director of an advertising agency. I knew nothing about advertising except for a couple of books I read, including the one that inspired me from those wonderful folks who gave you Pearl Harbor by Jerry Delafamina. And I ended up working at his agency. So no offense in, in, in back then. I mean, I, I know this this era. There's this um there's this famous uh lodging uh building for women only who come to the city and they're they're yes. they're taken care of yes. and they do have people who show up and give them lectures on home ec and typing and the like. I mean, the Mary Tyler Moore thing didn't catch up with you by then? It was the tail end of that. And I do remember that building it was on 60th and Lexington, I believe. Uh, and men were not allowed up there. I'm sure they were snuck up. They were allowed in the lobby. Uh, but that was that was when women banded together as opposed to getting their own apartment and starting to live together. Um, and, uh, Rona Jaffe wrote many books uh, about that, the best, years, the best years of our lives or something like that. Helene, I'm going to make myself vulnerable here. I'm the father of a daughter. Mm. And in this backlash, what we've seen over the past three weeks with, I mean – actresses coming out, I mean, uh, pointing the finger at people who out downright assaulted them and, you know, in the best case scenario and intimidated them into coercive sex and a kind of soul numbing um, uh, compromises that they had to make. Why is it so taboo for me to say that I'm especially attuned to this as a father of a daughter? Why, why has there been such a backlash against that? I guess because uh, Harvey Weinstein has four daughters. And he should have been very attuned to that as a father. Uh, instead, he's turned into what seems to be one of the biggest predators uh, I, I've ever seen in my life. It's the number of women that he um, he coerced. The fact that he is still absolutely unapologetic and feels that every single act that was committed was consensual because the second he bullied them into or, or, or scared them into um, committing to being in that room. He said that it was uh, consensual. The, uh, what he's doing as a human being is, is unbelievable to me. What's even more unbelievable is what I think is the only reason he was caught is because he bullied the men around him as much as he bullied the women. He just didn't sleep with them. So when his business was not doing well and when uh, his company was not doing absolutely perfectly and up there, when they began to fail just a bit, everyone jumped on him to bring him down. I don't understand how people sit on these secrets for so long. Is there that much of an intimidation? I can see that when the dam breaks and somebody comes out like Rose McGowan and Isn't it makes it much easier, or Annabelle Ciora and, and the other people who come out, it's, it's, it's really humiliating for who these people to, to admit seen? that. 
Who wants to be seen but as there, weak? But am I so naive as to think that there were always channels in HR or whistleblower? I guess I come from the paradigm of corporate America where you have a whistleblower outlet. I mean, I'm shocked. This is happening at NPR this week. NPR is no, you know, right wing country club yeah. uh, that apologizes for male boorishness. The top editor there, they've, they've suborned this terrible behavior on this part that's been going on back at the New York Times 20 years ago. You want you want to find a female-friendly company that has, mm-hmm. you know, female interests at heart. <laughs> it's top, it's first top female editor who was a Washington editor back then when they interviewed her about it, Jill Abramson. I couldn't believe I saw the quote said, yeah, I told him to knock it off. Knock it off yeah. is kind of like joking behavior, like something you do at a happy hour or something like that. This is this is this is life and death intimidation. You had reporters who came out at, at NPR and said that we were just downright terrified of seeing him in private. And it became an impediment. If you want your career to go forward, it has to go through this man's office. The woman that brought down Uber, she wrote a column, uh, just a personal blog, and she was very polite about it. She said, this is my experience here. Uh, this is what I went through. She was a whistleblower. She went to HR. There was a woman at the head of HR. She reported every single uh, action against her, and nothing was done. Nothing was done. Uh, she's on record for all of these, and basically she was told to shut up and just get with the program. And when she finally left and published this, she was the whistleblower. Uh, and only uh, support around her uh, and the newspapers picking it up uh, brought down the CEO brought down, you know, their organization and revealed it to be the sexist uh, organization it is and the culture that it was and the culture that Silicon Valley is and the culture that gaming is. Gaming, actually, there there are women there in gaming that are in fear for their lives because they want them out of there. What kind of what kind of power do, do, do or what are they afraid of, of women? What could we possibly do? I wonder, and, and again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being a drugstore psychotherapist here, but how much of it in your estimation is men who didn't get time of day in high school who become powerful and just want their revenge? Uh, I, you know, sometimes I think that as well. You think well. about it. You think about these awkward guys that become Hollywood moguls, the tech, the tech, you know, the tech bros that are big. One of the top tech writers, you know, his company was bought out. This happens in Silicon Valley. They're, they're maladroit to this. But I also sense that there might be a power revenge dynamic. Uh, power revenge. And if you look at Anthony Weiner, it's it's just that it happens to be a sickness that he has. Uh, obviously, couldn't control himself because he took down uh, his own career and his wife and his child and could not help himself. Uh, some of it is, well, look, I can finally uh, I can finally get some easily. Uh, because I've got some power, but um, what joy? This is again naive. What joy is there in getting some through coercion? Again, I come from a really naive place. How about the number of women who are raped, and the last thing their rapist says to them is, "Did you like that?" I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about the dynamic of men and women. I don't know what it is about the fact that a man has a uh, penis. Uh, he assumes that somebody out there will want it because it's there. And that's all I can uh, I can't imagine uh, any other reason other than um, they just assume. Uh, you know, I, maybe this is not appropriate. That the, the amount of times I've heard she's asking for it, Donna Karen coming out and saying, Donna Karen, who dressed us 
the way she wanted to dress us, who dressed us in low cut and I'm a woman and I'm powerful and I can look sensual and sexual, comes out and says, perhaps it's the way women present themselves and actually uh, was an apologist for Weinstein. I, I don't know what goes through people's minds. Do I sometimes think, uh, why are these young women dressed in almost nothing? Don't they know what's going through other people's minds? But we're trained to be attractive. We're trained to be sexy. And then we're trained to take it back. And we're trained to take it back. Uh, we're, we're, just as, um, we're, we're just as hypocritical as, as our male counterparts in some way. I want you to look at me. Don't touch me. Uh, but when I say don't touch me, I mean it. And then there are the men who say, if you want to get ahead in this world, and I will prove it to you, uh, you will get a better job, or I will ruin you in this town, which is what Weinstein did. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Helene Spivak. She's executive director of VCU Brand Center, really well-traveled in the Madison Avenue realm. Uh, she started back then in 1973 and has traversed pretty much every big shop and has seen great behavior and boorish behavior and people taken down and secrets kept. Um, you know, I think the gold standard for how did people wait this long was obviously the Bill Cosby story. This oh, is this is the, America's dad in the 1980s. I played a gynecologist and this stuff was happening in the 70s. I mean, we knew there was a shadow in persona and he would show up at the Playboy Mansion. But no one, did, did, did anyone ever expect that he was that predatory, that he would knock people out and do this? And then his wife would apologize for him. And again, there was a tipping point. I mean, Bill Cosby was fair game to appear on the Today Show until... The comedian Hannibal Burris yep. Yep. pointed him out, and then, and then, I, I mean, a very, very fine time. He became radioactive. What's interesting is that it was a man who outed him again. The women's voices all these years went unheard. Uh, his voice suddenly it, it took on. It, it, it's as if there was that that wall, that dike that was holding back the ocean. There was that crack, and he started it. And it's and still it, the women are being. Just dragged through the mud. Uh, he's destroyed. His career is destroyed. His reputation is destroyed. He's turned into a vile predator. Um, his wife is still standing by him. His kids, his daughters are still standing by him. And it happened at, at Fox News with Roger Ailes, too. Mm -hmm. He passed away last year. But um, the people that he brought on coming out and, you know, I think a, a, a tipping point with was at Gretchen Carlson. Uh, last year and the year before, um, and finally emboldening other women to step forward. And I think that one of the sadder things is for the women who've, and I have friends who are at Fox News and Fox Business, who are still there. There's a question, uh, there's this bubble almost atop their heads when people see them like, oh, were you one of the ones that acquiesced to his demands because you're there? It just casts a terrible pall over everyone. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I worked with Roger during one of the campaigns and, you know, I can honestly say saw none of that. It was, it was just about, you know, business as usual and work and work and work. But again, you know, ultimate power and working with all of these women who are sitting in front of you saying, yes, please, I'd like a career. I think the, um, you know, someone like Roger, who's a very brilliant man, but let's face it, he was not the most attractive man in the world. And to be able to, uh, to command these women, these lovely Blonde anchors, as a lot of Fox News is and was, uh, was, I guess, too much for him to resist. Going back to the early 70s, let's say timestamp water, Watergate period, when, when do you recall you were first harassed in the professional world and made uncomfortable? 
Uh, women are made uncomfortable every single day. Back then, walking down, simply walking down the street as a young woman, you're harassed. Passing by, you know, the the uh, you know the stereotypical construction site. I remember at 18, walking past a uh, in the garment center, walking past a restaurant, and there was a whole window full of men just watching me walk by. I mean, it it was you know, it's not any great compliment. It's it's very uncomfortable. Uh, where no matter how we look, we're we're vulnerable to people commenting on what we're doing, how we're doing it. Uh, literally, I had somebody I was introduced to somebody, and he stared directly at my chest the whole time. And it was so obvious that when I was introduced to him, I decided turnabout's fair play. Uh, I bent over to forty five degree angle and spoke directly into his fly, and I said, "Nice to meet you too." Wow. I must admit I was uh, subject to conversation for a while, but I was not going to put up with that. And um, I embarrassed him the way um, he thought he might have embarrassed me. Was it was it just fair game that you were able to make a pass at a young person who comes in with receptionist responsibilities? She's got typing responsibilities. I mean, e- equal rights amendment and all that stuff is not quite fair game yet. We are coming on the heels of Mary Tyler Moore, but it was I wor- a very different time. I worked at an agency. And Jerry Delvamina says this all the time. He admits to it. Back then, I think I was 24, 25, he had a sex contest in the, uh, in, in the, um, in the agency. And the winner could get um, a night for two at a hotel and dinner. Nobody ever took it. But it was who's the best, who's the sexiest, who's the best looking. And people used to vote. It was just a very open, you know, 60s, 70s, you know, time. And it was just a joke. And, but they only hired attractive young women. Uh, there was one woman there who was older, um, and she always wore a wig. And we said, you know, what, you know, why do you bother with this? And she said, well, look at everybody. I, you know, she was afraid that she'd be let go because of her age. Um, back then, it was just kind of freewheeling madmen, and you can always pull back and say, oh, come on, have a sense of humor. You're being too sensitive. It's all in fun here, and not everybody experienced that's all in fun. I learned to be tough, and I learned to be the kind of woman that if you say something to me, you're going to get double back. So I just did my job. Uh, But there were a lot of young women. Uh, A friend of mine said she had slept with her boss, and I said, why? She said, well, I was afraid I'd be fired. And I said, it's not as if you're, you're a major executive here. You're a woman who can get a job somewhere else. You have no right to demean yourself to keep a position like that, and you should report him. Again, a married Report man. Report him to who? What was the recourse back then? Back then, it was still HR, not the who kind is HR. Of... Is it a person in an office, a woman in glasses, smoking a cigarette? I mean, I, I mean, what is HR? HR these days is something a lot more organized than that. It's someone who is trained to deal with these issues. It's someone who is. Uh, I know at the school where I am, there's something called Title IX, and even the hint of something has to be reported immediately. Uh, there's a lot of protection uh, for the victim. Uh, HR is something that is um, that's more of a science now, and you are trained. However, there was HR at Uber, and you would imagine that the second a young woman came in and said, "I am I am I am being held back in my job. I am being harassed and documenting it," you imagine that something would have been done as opposed to putting it in a file. I met with a young woman who is on a tenure track doctorate, and she asked at a I was at a woman's forum, and she said, "Can I, I, I need to ask a question. I was sexually harassed by a professor that I'm working with, and I, we said, report it. She said, I did, and I was told, oh, that's professor, you know, um, he's retiring soon. 
he's got 80 of these things against him. And they were just waiting. This is a woman that she reported it to that basically said, just keep quiet. He's going to retire soon. So what's a woman supposed to do when it's someone like Cosby, when it's someone like Weinstein, when it's someone... Rose McGowan, for years, has been saying, I was raped. Uh, Ashley Judd, for years, has been saying, I went through something. When she finally did report it and finally did say who it was, isn't it interesting that Delta, when she left a flight and she left some stuff behind put her stuff through some kind of drug test, and now there's a warrant out for her arrest for uh, having, you know, isn't that amazing, the timing? Uh, she finally spoke, and they're still after her. So what's a woman supposed to do? I Go do, back home? I, I do want to ask that question now, and that we, we are 42, 43 years removed from you starting in Madison Avenue, and you'd think there were all these other elements with Title IX, with co-education, with... Um, you know, Geraldine Ferrara, Hillary Clinton running, uh, people in positions of power. And yet, again, I'm being naive here. It's amazing that all of this was subterranean and it's only come out now. I wonder if one of the reasons, besides you you can point out all the all the problems that were in the Clinton administration and all the whisperings that are done over Hillary, but she was so despised. And I believe she was despised not just for uh, her politics, but the fact that she was a woman, the fact that Bernie Sanders got so close, the fact that Barack Obama was elected. I said that she will be the first woman in history to go down as a woman who could get a a Jewish man and an African-American man made president other than elect her. Not that I, you know, I I like Bernie Sanders, uh, like Barack Obama, but I think the hatred of a woman in that position when all over the world there are plenty of women in power. There's something about, um, seems to be something about America and men and women. Let me tell you, there is there is a resentment even within the Democratic Party and a lot, among the, a lot of the Bernie bros is that she was uh, needlessly Machiavellian during her husband's ordeal in 1998. And I'm having to deal with, you know, I think it's a sexist way of referring to these bimbo explosions. Um, you put political survival ahead of human rights and gender rights. And so for all of her bona fides as a feminist, that was a big knock against her. I, a lot of women who did not vote for her said one of the reasons they didn't vote for her, which to me is absurd, is that she never left Bill. They didn't respect her for not leaving him during that time. Uh, There are so so many other things that... um, the original prejudice, as I keep saying, is not about color or race or anything. The original prejudice is men and women and a, a woman's position. And um, I, don't, I don't know why. Uh, some say it was uh, witchcraft. Some say it's because we bear children. Some say it was an, an original fear. Uh, I, don't know enough, uh, I don't know enough about uh, history that far back to know why. But I know that the women's movement will never move unless men get behind it. And the likelihood of that... Uh, in that we still kind of hang back with the beast and hit her on the head and drag her into the cave. Uh, we all seem to kind of revert to that for some reason. Talk to me about uh, the women you deal with, uh, uh, you know, 20-somethings, late teens coming to you in, in this day and age and what they are seeing in the real world and how that jives with their professional plans. I mean, you read one thing in an admissions catalog and, and career catalogs and everything and you see something else. Uh, for example, with the, all the NPR news this week, the head of news, they found out that he was a serial sexual harasser and that this had gone on for the longest time. 
And and there's more anger now in that why wasn't this sussed out? Why wasn't this rooted out at a place that's really transparent and um, espouses all sorts of equality, LGBT equality, gender equality, benefits for um, life partners and the like. I mean, the fact that it could even happen there. So I wonder kind of what kind of, you know, the, the temperature you're getting from your students and your workforce-bound people that come to you for advice. They're worried about three things. The first thing they're worried about is, uh, will I be able to balance everything? Uh, will I be able to have children and still work? Um, and they also know, because I decided to see if the generations really were changing, and I just did what everybody does. I Googled, are young men now as um, biased against women as the, you know generations before? And up popped a Harvard study. Granted, it wasn't uh, a huge uh, slice of uh, the population uh, that they did amongst a, a cross-section of their male students. And uh, it was May of 2016. And what the study, um, at the end of the study, was the, the, the finding that uh, they're more prejudiced against women, that they would rather work with a man who is lesser than a, than a woman than work with a woman of, uh, of, of, of superior intellect. They just feel more comfortable. And I pointed this out to a young woman because I was doing a presentation on marketing to women because most men market to women, not women to women. And this young woman said, yeah, we know they're, you know, they're just as bad. However, I feel now that we have more support of other women. And that's what has changed. I mean, years ago, it would be when I was in uh, the ranks, it was there can only be one woman successful at this place and that woman is going to be me. So we didn't support each other. And these days, there's a lot of support. But going back to NPR, I don't think I would have wanted to have been that first woman to speak up. I would have wanted to know that there were others around me. But we don't always talk about it. And we have to be more transparent. You know, it broke my heart this week to see Lara Satrakian step up. This is one of the most decorated uh, journalists uh, kind of in my peer group. Um, she runs the news site Syria Deeply. She was a star at ABC News at Bloomberg. She reported from Tahrir Square during the Egyptian Revolution. Uh, gosh, she speaks how many languages? Arabic, Armenian, French, and Spanish. She studied Persian and Portuguese. She's been to Syria. She graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College and is there coming out in the open and talked to Judy Woodruff on NewsHour about her ordeal with a very prominent um, political writer who was felled this week, you know, another Harvard mm -hmm. University person. And it, it just struck me as it's such a waste. It's such a, um, a blanket way of diminishing a person who had, who had lined up everything, who was her whole life, she's just hustled and worked hard. And in that one kind of nauseous or two nauseous encounters with this man who reverted to kind of a caveman-like boorishness, it just erased all of it for her. And she sat on it for the longest time. That's what we do. But why? Still to this stage, I, underst I, I don't understand in the 60s and 70s if you didn't have an outlet for it. But are we still so retrograde as a society that there's no outlet, there's no whistleblower forum for these people to truly go to, that they live in constant fear and shame? I don't know what went through her head. Certainly no one that accomplished. But it, it boils down to it could have been fear. And once giving into it, it's definitely definitely embarrassment. And then it's looking at her accomplishments. How could she have done that? I think it's, we feel that somehow it was our fault. Uh, but nobody, 
the thing about if we can go back to Mr. Weinstein for a second, he is a very large, looming presence. I, I, I saw him a couple of times out and about in New York. He's a boorish, large, aggressive man. And I doubt any of these little starlets were over 110 pounds, 115 pounds. And coming against someone like that, they could have been just plain scared. I don't know what went on in uh, in, uh, in the situation of where uh, the woman you were talking about. I don't know what the man that... Um, she was put into that position with was physically. But at a certain point, you just go, is this the point that's going to ruin my entire life? And do I have to do this? I mean, you see him almost every morning on Morning Joe. He had a show on Showtime. He's very well put together, very I mean, looks anything but profane. Um, in an essay that Laura Satrakian wrote for The Washington Post, she said, my story was excruciating to tell. To do so, I had to overcome the pleas of my family and the whispers of fear in my own mind. Mm -hmm. But I feel compelled to come forward because we need to understand what went wrong and what it says about television journalism. We can't expect the culture of our newsrooms to get better if we're not honest about what's happening. We can't pretend these incidents are isolated to a few salacious cases at Fox News or call out other flawed industries and institutions with self-righteous indignation. We have to clean our own house. It makes me very sad. It just makes me very sad to know that the second uh, I walk out of the house, just by being a female, I'm somehow a target to be a victim. And I think that's what all of these women must feel like at a certain point. Despite what I've accomplished, despite that I've accomplished uh, more than you, and you know, I don't mean you, you, more than you, despite that, I can still be felled by the fact that I'm a woman and... Um, you're stronger than me, or you're more influential than me, or I, 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 I don't know. I just know that being a female, for some reason, no matter how much you accomplish, can still be uh, a negative. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Helene Spivak, veteran ad industry executive. She's now executive director of the VCU Brand Center. Uh, close us out in the few minutes we have left. I mean, this is this is continuing real time. I mean, you just open up Google News. Kevin Spacey's career is effectively over. I mean, they're going to shut down production of House of Cards. And it's right. it's fascinating. Within House of Cards, he's a person who leverages uh, sex and power. He's kind of playing that loathsome yeah. character. But all these people are coming out of the woodwork. And he kind of cynically used the occasion to formally come out of the closet, which with oh, the LGBT God. movement said, oh, hell no. I don't blame them. I mean, you don't use that. You don't say it was a drunken moment and it was 30 years ago. Uh, you don't know what that young actor was going through for 30 years hiding that. So the fact that he came out 30 years later, I don't blame him, and I'm, I applaud the fact that he did. The fact that Spacey used that to come out of the closet and put what most people will call pedophilia out of a 14-year-old boy, and then to equate, because it's difficult enough for a, a gay man these days to adopt and to have children and do all of that without equating. In the 80s, they had to contend, if you look at Barney Frank, that they were made synonymous with pedophilia. Yes, exactly. And it... It, it, <laughs> it just set the movement back several decades. It's not that. I think our, our, our current government is setting the movement back several decades. I think the fact that our own president is... Uh, has been uh, accused of, uh, well, self-proclaimed um, aggression against women and using his power. And uh, there are more coming out of the woodwork. But, of course, they're liars, uh, from what I understand. Uh, every other woman may not be a liar, but the women that are accusing uh, President Trump of doing the very same thing that uh, many women are coming out for, um, he, again, it's a woman that's covering for him, um, 
Miss Huckabee, and uh, a woman around him that's covering for him, the grotesque uh, blonde. And um, it can't stop unless there's a culture and um, a bunch of, of, of men who will come forward and say, we have to stop this. That they have to show skin in the game as well. Yes. That's the Me Too. The Me Too should be men coming out and saying, I will help. I won't put up with this. But again, why is it a problem? And this this gets back into kind of my own psychological issues. Why is it a problem when men invoke being fathers of daughters? That I understand. Someone told me, a good friend said, it should just be an absolute. I should have absolute human rights. It should have nothing to do with whether you have empathy as a father of a daughter. You should look at me as a human being. I'm, you know, I've had fathers. I've had a father and... You know, that father could have been a great father or a bad father. I sh- you should just look at me as an equal. Um, but I have to tell you, since becoming father of a daughter, I feel indignant. I'm, I'm, you know, it's like we're sending our children into predatory savannah. I think it says what some men think of women. And I doubt anyone thinks of their daughters as someone that would ever be in that position. Uh, my daughter is not a slut. My daughter is not a tramp as are all of these women who I am coming on to. I think there's a separation there. And uh, I also think that if any of these men were told that anyone did this to one of their daughters, there would be more homicides in this country. But um, instead, I, I do think they separate these women in front of me, who are my prey, from these daughters who I treasure. What would you have done differently uh, to be a torchbearer for your sex going back in kind of your storied career now, knowing what you know. I'm, again, I'm amazed that people sat on the Cosby stuff for this long. I'm amazed that and, – and, and it's a, such an apology to say that it was an open secret that this guy was a creep. Oh, it's just Weinstein being Weinstein or Ratner being Ratner. I mean that that is really apologizing and I wouldn't call it boorish behavior, but you're expecting people to work among sexual predators. They're worth so much money. They had so many sponsors. They, you know, there was so much that could fall down with them. So they just kept it going. And he was such a good example for so long for the African-American community uh, to show professional and to show that this loving relationships and to go against all the other uh, stereotypes. People were proud of him and did not want to take him down. And that's how it lasted. That well, I remember long. the irony of ironies is that he was livid about Eddie Murphy during Raw and kind of coming to America and his language. Yeah. You know, and the fat Albert, uh, Bill Cosby is like this. How can you how can you have that shadow of persona? He felt all he had to do was come out with his Ph.D. and yell at young black men to pick up their pants. And he was going to be the shining example. And it turned out that, um, well, you know what it turned out being. Uh, And he still is – he's still trying to fight it, and which is even sadder. Go home. Close me off on a hopeful note, Elaine. On a hopeful note, women have started to speak and many men have started to listen. And even if we've backed people against a wall to have to do it, I don't think the dam is going to be plugged up again. Elaine Spivak, Executive Director of the VC Brand Center, you're always welcome on this show. People love hearing your mellifluous voice. <laughs> You're great to put up with me. You've been an excellent sounding board for kind of my, you know, professional insecurities, personal insecurities, and it's <laughs> it's exceedingly kind of you to resist the urge to step across the table and slap me across the <laughs> face. Thank you so much Never. for coming. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Love us on NPR One because I seek your validation. We're also on iTunes at Full D Radio. Twitter at Foldy Radio, Facebook.com slash Foldy Radio. 
I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 